Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions. In this episode, Maxine Mackey of Label Sessions talks to Howard Moore. Howard is a world-class leader in operational excellence and risk management, making the complicated simple for companies like Zoopla, Deutsche Bank, Citibank, and more. He thrives in changing environments with the opportunity to build resilience and transparency in digital transformation. Maxine talks to him to find out more. Howard, thank you so much for joining us today. Could you introduce yourself, please, to the Label Sessions audience? Of course. Thanks very much for having me. So I'm Howard. Um, I help build better, more functional organizations for people. I do that through introducing operational excellence ideas. Uh, my experience is largely in the banking and financial sector. I spent 20 years uh, working for various tier one banks uh, around the world. Um, about eight years or so ago, I left and went into the tech sector and have been working there ever since, helping uh, financial, non-financial challenges and other more tech or database companies uh, with their operational excellence journeys and helping them to move forward as much as possible as well. Awesome. Um, so you really built your career helping organizations implement these kind of better structures and processes. So I guess teams are communicating better and ultimately working towards their, their company's kind of a purpose and vision. What advice would you give to leaders who want to make change happen in their organizations. Perhaps they're stuck, perhaps they want to just make change happen faster. But if we frame it within operational excellence, what do, what do leaders and big organizations need to be aware of? First of all, I think it's a very valid question. And I think the leader has to be, but the person that is going to run or own the change has to fully acknowledge that to start off with. They have to be the person that understands why the change is going to happen. And, and really, they have to develop an elevator pitch because they're going to be asked why, they're, why are they implementing something that is disrupting the way that the company works now at least 100 times, and they're going to be able to justify it. And they have to be able to be give a concise and authentic answer as to why that happens. And then they have to understand that they're part of the change too. They're trying to implement the change for the organization and it will affect them as well. It's not just something that they can dictate down to the people lower in the hierarchy and say, you must change and it's all going to be great. And so there needs to be an understanding of, okay, what does it mean for them? And then what does it mean for everybody that's going to be affected by the change? And it's really important that the communication channels for that are clear and open and two-way because change can be difficult for people to accept, particularly when things appear to be working fine as they are, there's going to be resistance. And so it's about ensuring that at the outset, they're authentic, the communication lines are open, and they have the feedback possible to understand that where they expect this to go may not be entirely where it ends up. There are better possible outcomes that will happen by getting feedback, by going through the process and by understanding that. And they have to be open to that change as much as anything else. That's really interesting. It's I'm sure it must be challenging for some leaders who are almost, you know, saying that elevator pitch, you know, a hundred times a day, a hundred times a week, but actually as and when that changes, navigating that and being comfortable in accepting feedback 
and being able to, I guess, um, go through that loop and cycle with the elevator pitch? Yeah, look, very much so. And I think that you know, one of the most difficult things about it is that you can almost develop a dogma around the change and you know, we're doing this because this is the reason and it's going to be great and that sort of stuff. And whilst, you know, we, we, I'm sure we'll touch on the pitfalls as we go through it, you, you have to be aware that when you introduce an idea, people will go away and think about and process the idea as well. And the idea that you have all the answers and you know everything that's best for the organization is something that you have to let go of quite a lot. You have to be able to say, look, this is the direction we're going and I need your help to, for us to get there. And you have to be prepared to accept that sometimes what you think may be the right path may be only half the right path and you need to go halfway down and then, and then continue on with better ideas that come from other people other than yourself. And it's that sort of trying to park your ego as much as possible or a change program. Imagine there's something interesting in the, I guess, the messy middle of management who are trying to navigate, implementing, absorbing the, the kind of a new direction of travel whilst probably having perspectives of their own. Mm, very much so. And, and I think that this is one of, the, one of the major pitfalls of most change programs is that you, you come across, particularly as a COO, as an example, you can be stuck in the middle of an institutional no and a leader, a CEO, who is absolutely made it your priority to make this happen. And being stuck in the middle and then ensuring that, you know, you have to have a way to be able to ensure that people understand the reasons. You have to agree with the reasons to a, to a large point. And you have to be able to then help them turn around the institutional no. And then the institutional no is where you have a dissenter or a large point of resistance in a program and they constantly push up and are negative towards any of the changes that are happening. And you need to try and work around that through communication flows, through proper explanation, and the acknowledgement that their issues are not completely irrelevant or not uh, useful to the whole cycle of change. So let me take a step back for a second and, and ask you, what does, um, what does it look like when companies get it right? What do they move from and to? Because I'm curious around when people are able to implement you know, and get to a place of organizational excellence? I mean, if you can implement an organizational excellence idea, that the biggest benefit that you get is that people start to understand why they are doing their jobs on a day-to-day -day basis and what their job means. And when you can understand that, then it helps to increase your fulfillment in your role, hopefully. I mean, it may not increase your fulfillment in your role. And then at least then you, the people understand that they need to leave to find a different role or that it's not suiting their career purposes and that sort of stuff. But when it does work and your people are where they need to be, and that will be a period of change within itself, then you can have a higher performing organization because people understand the effects of their work and people understand the effects of their work or their day-to-day -day tasks or their involvement in those tasks with the rest of the organization. And particularly if you start to marry that towards uh, higher level internal and then external goals, then people feel that they're working towards something. And the communication flows are working well and they, then they understand where they are in that process and they can then start to feel proud of where they're 
part of the organization sits and what the organization is doing. Maybe um, lift the lid on the engine for me around what it means to make the and takes to make the complex simple for a chief operations officer or and a bit and a leader in a big organization. What what do you have to do? Because I feel like when I'm hearing you speak, you must have to have so many conversations all the time. Um, I need a huge amount of resilience to kind of uh, make complex simple but you know um, give me some secrets how what does it take absolutely well first and foremost you have to not be bored of the sound of your own voice because you do have to do a lot of conversations have a lot of conversations and often cover the same ground because you need to make sure that people have all the information that they need but i've always liked to think of it as a bit of like a Cezanne or an impressionist painting from a distance it looks like a coherent bridge or like a coherent field or whatever it is but when you get up closer, you see that it's a whole lot of individual brushstrokes that are separate but connected. And as a at a distance, it is a whole, but up close, it's a lot of different things that need to interconnect and need to relate to each other. And, and what it is, is making the complex simple, is understanding that it's breaking it down into all of those little bits that all work along each of the process flows to make sure that people understand where it comes from, where it goes, what it does. Why that happens, who is it for, why is it for them, and what are we trying to work towards? And so it's about trying to break it down so people can understand the best possible way to do their role. So they have the creativity to understand this is what I'm trying to achieve, this is where it's trying to, what it's trying to do. Does it make sense? And you then free them up to inject their abilities into the role because they're going to understand their rules better than you will. And so, okay, well, maybe we should do this or maybe we should do that. We need to meet these goals or these expectations. What's the best way to do it? And if people feel that they have some input into the rules that they're doing, they become far more invested in it. And so if you can make the whole overall complex idea into simple tasks or simple processes, then people can start to feel far more involved in so you've not only made the complex simple for the organizations you've worked with, you've done it in so many different geographies. I think you, am I right? You've worked in Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore. Um, I think there's probably a few more I've missed from that list. What advice would you give to people who are navigating kind of a different working environments and cultures? Because this is obviously something you've leaned, leaned into, you know, a huge amount in your career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I've been really lucky uh, because I've been sent to places, please go and sort this out or please go and do that. And, you know, I wouldn't change that for anything. It's the most exciting and interesting thing. I think the most difficult part is to realize that it's not a passive process in that if you're going to, you know, if you want to change your industry or if you want to change your location or you want to change um, even a company, it's not a passive process. You have to be prepared to put yourself out there. You have to listen and you have to try and understand and you have to try and be sympathetic, but you have to ask questions. You have to be the person on the front foot quite a lot to say, look, I don't understand what that meant or I don't understand why we do this. Can you please teach me? Can you please help me? You have to try and find people that are prepared to do that. And you, know, you have to admit that you don't know everything. You know, one of the really interesting parts about moving from the relatively rigid corporate world of investment banks to the tech sector was that 
things don't work the same way. And you may think it's better or you may think it's worse. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean anything to any of the people there. You're just another person that's being asked to do a role. So you have to understand why things work the way they do, why people act the way they do, what the aspects are. And you have to be prepared to say, okay, well, this is how it works now. I can then perhaps use my experience to, to help the company move forward because I've seen it work in different ways. That doesn't work culturally. There's no point. I mean, my, my first proper management job was in Tokyo. Um, I had a week's notice to prepare it, prepare for it. And then I was there I and mean, I arrived on a Sunday night and started work on the Monday morning, trying to introduce my limited experience of management, which was almost nothing, and my cultural experience to a team of Japanese people where English was a, their second language at best, is not the way forward. And you learn that through trial and error as well. You can't be too hard on yourself, but uh, you, know, you, you have to accept the different cultural norms and you have to try and understand them and try not to, to make too many major mistakes and upset too many people, which unfortunately I wasn't great at the start of, but you, you get there. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. How important is it to have your, I, I was going to say your tribe in an organization, but I, the, the people that help you make change happen? It can't be overestimated how important it is. You need to have a small group of people at minimum that are invested in the change that you want to do. And they have to have come to the same conclusions that you have almost independently when given the facts because they have to buy into it. It's very interesting when you look at some of the different cultural norms uh, and Japan's a good example of this. You know, the, the idea that the boss has said it, therefore it must work, doesn't breed a particularly uh, happy workforce in these sorts of situations. And, you know, that has changed quite a lot through the, through Kainzen and the Toyota way and the way that Japan moved its, um, you know, the archaic cultural norms it had previously. But you need to have a group of people and hopefully in leadership positions that buy into the change that you want to be able to do and are also then prepared to be your cheerleaders, your instigators, your salespeople for that change within the organization so that when they're asked in the elevator, why are we doing this? They have a very similar or the same elevator pitch that you have. So I think there's so, there's definitely something in the importance of your network and an organization to make change happen because really it kind of sits within people. But let me pick, while I've got you, let me pick your brain around the pitfalls people can avoid when trying to make change happen in an organization. I'm assuming you probably... Um, Seen, seen it all. Well, yes, the, the good, the bad, the ugly. No, and I think, um, I think one of the biggest pitfalls is to make make it a dictatorial idea. Yeah, we've been going through the the ideas of it. You know, it needs to be inclusive. It needs to be well communicated. It needs to be well planned. But if it's none of those things, then it, it won't. Uh, and you know, every large corporation has been going through multiple change programs for as long as we can all remember. And not all of them are successful. In fact, most of them aren't. And I think 
one of the key things that I've found is that there needs to be an investment at the beginning to understand what you expect the change and where you where you expect the change to be and where you expect the major impacts to be and to try and be ahead of those problems. Because a lot of the, the issues that arise are because people expect the change to be an almost organic process. And by that, I mean that it's not properly planned out. It is, we will implement this and then this will happen and people will just have to accept it. And that never works. And you have to also then not leave your middle management in the middle, stuck between a workforce or, or people on the ground who don't want the change to happen because they either don't understand it or they can see the impacts on their roles and they are not happy with what those impacts are going to be. And a senior leadership who has made it uh, a requirement as part of the KPIs for a quarter or for a year. And you need to under you need to really understand that far better because if people have felt like they're in the middle and they haven't bought into it, then they're not going to sell it properly. And if they don't sell it properly, then it's not going to work. And they're going to be resentful of having to be put in a position where they don't necessarily support what's happening. Let me ask you, how? what's the pathway for people um, to get to the, the kind of a, the role that you've been in, the COO role and, and operational excellence and risk lead? How does somebody... Um, normally like what's the career path normally to get to there i think that's an interesting question i don't know as COOs, um they come from different backgrounds generally speaking generally and they they need to have a good understanding of process and control so my background was coming through risk and finance and then uh, in corporate debt and understanding how the whole fitted together i guess is the best way to put it but COOs come from all sorts of areas. They're often uh, CFOs because they understand the finances of, of the company and they understand how that impacts the various different areas and they, they have an understanding of how those processes work and that sort of thing. Some of them, like myself, are a bit weird or a bit obsessed with making uh, efficiencies. Uh, my son gets bored of me walking into coffee shops and say, look, you can see where they're doing something wrong here and, and that doesn't work. And if they did that this way and that sort of stuff, um, you, you need to sort of have a little bit of that mindset as well as to, okay, thinking about making processes more efficient or, or and I, I like to put it, thinking about making people's roles more purposeful as much as possible so that people know what they're supposed to be doing. Um, but the, the, the actual answer is there's no designated path. A lot of CLOs are talented managers. Uh, they're good at understanding how to implement change or do operational processes. And they're the person that the CEO trusts most to implement their plans. Howard, we're going to move on to the quick fire round. Okay, sure. So peak nosiness, where do you go to feed your brain creatively? I like going hiking for creativity and walking. I, I think anywhere where you can be doing something that doesn't necessarily require your full operation of your brain. Um, and so that you can then, <laughs> where you can, where you can almost daydream a little bit about how things should work differently and come up with different problems and that sort of stuff. And I also like looking outside of the industry I'm trying to work on and understand if there's something from somewhere else 
that maybe you can apply to this, um, whether it be managing a team, implementing a change process or whatever. I think that, you know, there's so many fantastic ideas out there and there's so much now available that it is looking at these different ideas and going, actually, you know, that's, yeah, if we tweaked it like this or like that, or, you know, that's a great idea. We should just do that. It's those sort of things. That, and trying to introduce different ideas at different times, I guess, is the best question, best answer. Who is interesting to follow from the world of operational excellence? Who do you like to kind of see what they're writing, see what they're saying? I mean, I think it's really interesting because operational excellence started with Henry Ford. So, you know, and the moving production line and that sort of stuff. And so, honestly... And as I was saying before, by taking different ideas from different areas, it's everybody from Henry Ford on. And there's nothing that you can't, that can't be useful in some ways. So, but I mean, I like to look at the world of sports. I'm quite interested in sports management and particularly elite sports management. There's a great book by Bill Walsh called uh, The Score Takes Care of Itself and about putting processes in place and those sorts of things. Um, there's the High Performance Podcast by Professor Damien Hughes, um, which is now a very popular podcast, which is fantastic. He talks to uh, him and Jay Humphreys talk to a lot of very interesting people with how they run their teams and how their success comes and those sorts of stuff. And, and sports documentaries and and uh, documentaries about companies that didn't work or failed and that sort of stuff. You know, the smartest people in the room. The Enron book is a fantastic place to start. And, and also, sorry, yeah, just reading the Toyota way about Kaizen and those sorts of stuff is a good place to start if people are interested in the concepts and then pick up what different companies are doing. What do you think is overhyped right now? Um, is there anything that you think is interesting that's not picked up by the mainstream? Um, I think the whole argument about working from home seems to be uh, headlines in the papers and people writing about it on LinkedIn the whole time and I, I really have never understood it. it it seems very strange to me you should be doing you should be people should be doing the thing that works best for their role and for their lives and if that means they work from home they work from home if they work from an office they work from an office I, I this rigidity around it seems very strange to me um i think it's massively overhyped and i think that it people need to think about it a little bit harder uh in terms of things that people aren't paying attention to, I think it, we're at a very interesting technology point as AI is coming out and becoming an accepted in some areas and not accepted in others uh, way of thinking about things and way of potentially using a new tool. I think that a lot of it is not being applied to the operational side of things. And I think that people should be paying more attention to that. I think that there is a lot that can be done through using those kind of concepts into how we operationalize things rather than the, just the creative side of things. You've talked a lot about um, leading change, but let me ask you, how would you describe your leadership style? I describe myself as an optimistic cynic, and I guess my leadership style sort of reflects that. I am very enthusiastic type of person, particularly when I you know, believe in something like everybody does. Um, I like to be inclusive as much as possible as a leader, but with an understanding that you can have far too many inputs into simple decisions. And simple decisions sometimes need to be taken in a simple manner. And you shouldn't over, over 
make this sorry, make things too complicated, overcomplicate things uh, too much when it's not necessary, because you get bogged down in bureaucracy, and that doesn't necessarily work either. And if you had a superpower, what would it be? I'm a big traveller, so I guess it's flying. I think that would be quite cool. Um, I think it's very much about, uh, yeah, that would be my superpower. Fab. Well, I was going to ask you what you did when you're not working, but uh, I think you've already given me the answer. Lots of travel. Yeah, a lot of travel. Um, hopefully, you know, as much as possible. Um, and uh, playing and watching sport, playing and watching music, listening to music, that sort of stuff. Fab. I was... I was expecting you to say music with the guitars in the background. I've been dying to ask you about them. No, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of music in my life, which is fantastic. Awesome. Um, what the title would you give your autobiography or biopic? I think what's over the next hill, or I wonder what's over the next hill. Um, I was watching a documentary series the other day, and a person was describing that adventure lives beyond the next ridge. And uh, I, I really like that as an idea. I think it really sort of defines... You know, I wonder what happens if we did this, or I wonder what happens if we looked over there, or I wonder what happens. I wonder what I can find out. To close things off, I have to ask you, as we do everybody, on a scale of one to ten, um, how weird are you, Howard? Um, quite weird, I guess. Uh, I'd probably be a seven and a half or an eight out of ten, I guess. One of those weird people that can exist in society, but is probably thinking about something else. Something else. Well, thank you so much for kind of sharing some of your time and thoughts with us. We really appreciate it. Not at all. Thank you very much. It's always lovely to talk. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.